Lord, we just come recognizing that we're meeting in a school, Lord, but we're meeting in your presence. Where can we go from your presence, Lord? Whether here or across the world, Lord, you are always and, and everywhere present, not constricted like we are by geography and by our humanity, Lord. And we know and understand that uh, as we meet together today, your ears are listening, your eyes are looking on, your heart is encouraged to hear us share about your Son, to hear your Word and your Son having the primary place in our lives just knowing that that pleases you so much, Lord. And Father, we do pray that those areas that we have kept at a distance from you, those parts of our heart that have remained cold and walled off to your touch, that Lord, even today as the word is spoken, that walls would come down, that pride would dissolve, that knees would bend in worship to you. Father, we need your help. We need your salvation. We need your forgiveness. And I pray that you would do a, just a new work among us. A greater degree of love in our lives. Father, I pray that your word would, would be powerful among us this morning. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, we are in Matthew. The third chapter, as I said in the beginning, for those of you that haven't been here before, uh, we are looking at the gospel, or the good news, according to a man named Matthew, inspired by God to write a biography of Jesus Christ. So, like any good biography, we have looked at his birth and his childhood. As a matter of fact, chapter 1 was about the baby being born, that little baby in Bethlehem, Mary and Joseph having gone to Bethlehem from their home little town of Nazareth so that they could be counted as part of the census, that's where they give birth in Bethlehem to the baby boy. Well, chapter 2, took, uh, we, we, saw them, uh, we saw Jesus as a young child in his toddler years, and we see the Holy Family go from Bethlehem down to Egypt for his protection because Herod, the king at the time, heard about this other king that was born and wanted to do him in and do away with him. So they escaped to Egypt. And then by the end of chapter 2, they come back. But they come back and they settle back down in Nazareth. Again, the hometown of Mary and Joseph. Chapter 3, where we are today, uh, it's not the baby being born, not the young child being protected, but the beloved son being announced. And so as we progress, we're seeing this in context of a biography, the life of Jesus Christ. Now, question for you. When you were growing up, like me, did you learn it's not nice to point? Anybody ever tell you that? Well, you know, you maybe point at someone, hey, mom, look at him, or look at her, and you point, and your mom says, hey, hey, you know, it's not nice to point, don't point. Well, evidently, no one told John the Baptist that, because that's his whole calling, is to point. Now, The question I have for us, because we all point. I mean, we all do it. The question is, who do we point to? 
Who do we point to? Do we like to have the fingers pointing at us? Maybe not if there's blame to be assigned, but maybe if attention is to be had, uh, we like to be pointing toward us. We like to be that one in the center of attention. Who gets the attention? I guess that's the question I'm, I'm asking for you to think about as we get into this chapter, because chapter 3 will answer that question. Who gets the attention? Maybe you are one of those attention-seeking kind of people, like I have been in my life. I'm the unicyclist and the juggler and the clown and the class clown and all that. Just one of those things that God has had to work out with me in my life. Maybe you're one of those people that you have a tendency to try to get people to notice you. Maybe you work hard at getting people to notice you. It could be your clothes or your appearance. It could be certain fashions or piercings or whatever it might be, just drawing attention to you, saying, look at me. Maybe it's very subconscious. It could be the activities that you do and the way you do them, making sure that as you do the things you do, people are noticing you. It could be the, the fashion or the, the labels that you have for your clothes. It could be the type of house you live in, the way you keep your house, the way that you furnish your house. All things saying, well, look at me. These are making statements about me. Notice me. Attend to me. See me. Family. Even in church, we can fall into that, can't we? We can forget about Jesus and say, just look at what the church is doing. And all the attention could be on the church. And we do a disservice to people if we lead them only to the church. But I know this group, and I know some of you are the opposite extreme. Some of you would just assume crawl under your seat and hide as come to church this morning and see people and be around people. The far side, how many of you have seen the far side cartoons? One of them I saw was a picture of a bear, and he was in a hunter's crosshairs, and he's, got his, he's next to another bear, and he's pointing like this. In other words, don't look at me you know, with your crosshairs, hunter. There's a bear next to me, and that's who you should be focusing on. And that's how some of your lives are. You're like, you know, don't, whatever it is, don't focus on me. Just, I just want to disappear. I just want to come in and not have anybody notice me. Nobody talk to me. Don't say anything to me. I don't want to have to answer. I just want to disappear. Don't notice me. It's the opposite kind of thing. And that's troubling, too. Both of those extremes are wrong. To have too much attention to ourselves or to say, well, I don't want anybody to pay any attention to me. And we'll see why that's wrong as we look through this passage. I just like what Mother Teresa said, if you are humble, nothing will touch you. Neither praise nor disgrace because you know what you are. You know what you are. So what do we learn from this passage? We learn who gets the attention. And we see John the Baptist pointing to Jesus Christ. We see him pointing people to Jesus Christ. We see him pointing religious leaders to Jesus Christ. And we even see God pointing to Jesus Christ in this chapter. So, who, who else do we meet in this chapter? Chapter 3, we see Jesus again. Now he is an, uh, a young man or a middle-aged man. He's in his uh, 30 years old approximately. So about 28 years have been skipped by Matthew between the last chapter and this current chapter. We meet John the Baptist, a wild preacher. We talk about Pharisees and Sadducees, and we'll talk about who they are. And we meet in this chapter regular people. Regular people, they happen to be Jewish, largely, uh, but they're people just like you and I. So that's who we're going to meet in this chapter again. We are now not in Bethlehem. We're not in Nazareth. We are in the wilderness of Judea near the Jordan River, or right at the Jordan River. So chapter 3 begins with, verse 1, 
In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. So Matthew, again, skips this whole section of Jesus' early life, which really only Luke gives us information on. We have a small story about Jesus when he's about 12 years old. But other than that, this, this period of Jesus' youth is skipped. His adolescence is skipped. And we skip right to kind of the beginning of his ministry. Again, Luke gives us some information. Uh, Mark starts his, ga- his uh, gospel right here. Doesn't even mention the birth of Christ. Starts right with John the Baptist. So, you know, remember... As you, there's four Gospels, and what they do is they, they complement each other to round out the whole story. Matthew has a purpose for writing. He has a very direct uh, thing that he's trying to accomplish in a crowd that he's writing to. Luke has a different crowd, and John has a different crowd. And so you bring these all together, and it gives you the full story. So I'd encourage you to read the story of John the Baptist in all of the Gospels. So we get this abrupt introduction in those days. John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness. And and we've not met John the Baptist before. Uh, It's kind of an abrupt introduction here. Uh, Luke, again, gives the whole detail of John the Baptist's birth, how his father was a priest, and um, he was a relative of Jesus through through Mary. They were related. Um, Mary and Elizabeth were, were related. So Jesus and John the Baptist are related as well. The group he's writing to would have known who John the Baptist was historically. Many of you have heard of him. He's a confident, fiery preacher. I mean, I like this guy. He's a confident, fiery preacher. I mean, we need some fiery preachers these days, don't we? We need some people willing to stand up and and boldly proclaim the Word of God. And, And he's outside of the establishment. Notice where he is preaching. Remember, his dad is a priest. So he certainly could be where we might expect to find him, in the temple, the beautiful temple, Herod's temple. But that's not where he is. He's in the wilderness preaching. So he's sort of outside the establishment. And we see that happening all through Jesus' life because the establishment at the time was very corrupt. Very corrupt. And so when Jesus comes, the wise men come looking for him where? In Jerusalem. But he's not there. He's in Bethlehem. So on and on we see he kind of comes outside the establishment and, and John the Baptist, his announcer, his forerunner, is out in the wilderness. He's a simple and practical guy, and he's a baptizer. Baptist is his reputation, not his denomination, just in case you were wondering. Uh, Baptist is not his denomination. It is his reputation. He was known as the guy that's down at the river baptizing people. And he's, he's preaching... And the question is, what's his message? What is the message that he's preaching? Is he preaching that, you know, oh, God is going to bless your life? Oh, just, you know, God wants to do wonderful things for you in your life. No, not yet. His message is that of repentance. He says, he's preaching in the wilderness, verse 2, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His message is, hey, folks, it's time to wake up. It's time to wake up. Something is happening. Something fresh is happening. It had been 400 years of silence. The intertestamental period, we talked about that. 400 years since a prophet had proclaimed the word of God. And they were hungry for it. 
But during that 400 years, they had done what you and I can do in, in, in like four minutes. They'd started to fade away from God. They had their religious system, didn't they? I mean, they had their religious system. They had their temple and their priests and their sacrifices, and they were going through all the right motions. Then why does John come and say repent? What does repent mean? To turn, to change directions. It's a change of mind and a change of heart that leads to a change in direction. How many of you guys use Facebook? Right, a lot of us do. A lot of us use Facebook. And you contact and you get in touch with people you went to high school with. right? And you look at their Facebook and you're like, man, they are doing the same thing. They're going the same direction they were when I knew them in high school. And maybe sometimes that's bad. Maybe sometimes it's good, you know. But the point is, is that they're still doing the same thing, still going the same direction that they've always been going. And repentance is when you look at that Facebook and, and you like when people look at my Facebook and they see that I'm a pastor now, they go, whoa, that's different. <laughs> you say that about me too, huh, Jerry? It's a change. And so he is saying to the people that are supposed to be God's people who had over time and being part of the Roman Empire had started becoming very Hellenized or adopting the culture and they had uh, fallen away. They had stopped really serving God. They were serving their system. But they had stopped serving God. And inside, inside, most of them knew it. Most of them knew it and so when John comes and says, hey, we're not worried about the Roman Empire. We're worried about God's kingdom. That's what's happening right now, folks. It's at hand, John says. It's happening. Something is big. Something is coming. And we need to, you need to, I need to get ready for that. And his message was to prepare by repenting by changing direction and you can read more details on this in some of the other gospels they would come to him and say john what should we do you know we're we're soldiers what should we do hey stop shaking people up and abusing them as soldiers stop using your authority and your power to hurt people you know and the tax collectors will stop cheating people there was a definite change of behavior that was expected that is part of repentance repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and then we tie, verse 3, we tie this all into the scriptures. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So Matthew says, look, God is giving us another breadcrumb. He's called, God has called his shot. If you are a pool player, you know what it means to call your shot. You know, the number ball and, and which pocket it's going to go in, you tell it beforehand, and then you do it. Well, God, because he knows the end from the beginning, when it comes to Jesus Christ, he's called a shot. He called the shot way long time ago, and now he's just showing, here, this is what I said is going to happen. He's dropping, he dropped breadcrumbs all along the way so that you and I and the people of that day would not miss the Savior when he came. So he says, here was another breadcrumb left by Isaiah left by God through Isaiah, this breadcrumb of an announcement about a Messiah, about the king that's going to come. Now, when Isaiah wrote it, this Isaiah chapter 40, when he wrote, it was speaking of the, the Israelites coming back from having been taken captive by the Babylonians. They had been conquered and been carried off, deported, but 
the chapter 40 is a message of comfort. The comfort is, look, God is going to lead the way and bring you guys back. And that was partially fulfilled in, at that time, but now the full fulfillment of that is in the King, Jesus Christ, coming. And, and Matthew making that connection, connecting those dots for me and for you, saying, look, when Isaiah wrote that in chapter 40, that it wasn't just about the Babylonian captivity, it was about the Messiah coming to the nation and to the world. And so he makes that link. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Some of us feel like that sometimes. Maybe at your workplace. Maybe in your family. Man, sometimes I just feel like a voice crying in the wilderness. Like, is anybody listening? Is anybody listening? In the wilderness, don't picture wilderness like we have wilderness. Lots of trees. It was like a desert. Wilderness is a barren, a deserted place. There were a few little uh, villages or settlements there where John was baptizing. But for the most part, it was a desert. And, and he says, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, if the president or a king was coming to Palmyra, I mean, I imagine VDOT would be out there patching potholes, right? Especially on the route where the king was coming. And, and what if he was coming and on his agenda was your house? The king of England or the queen of England is coming to your house for lunch. I'm guessing, I'm just guessing that you're going to start looking for dust bunnies and scrubbing the floors, oh no, the king is coming. I mean, we need to clean up. We need to get ready. Would, would you or would you not? I mean, honestly. Or would you say, ah, King Schming, you know, let him see who I really am. Yeah, the, the in-laws come over and you go nuts trying to clean up, right? So if royalty was coming, we just know it. We would, we would kind of clean up and get ready. We would prepare. And when a king, when a monarch in those days was going to travel, he would send out an entourage before him to go and, and check out the path of where he was going on his excursion. And if there were you know, narrow paths and, and rocky ground, that anything that was hilly would, would be kind of leveled out, and any, any valleys would be filled in to make straight the path so the king wouldn't have to, to uh, be hassled on the way. He could have a nice smooth ride. I mean, how much we would love that, a smooth ride. And, and that's what John the Baptist is saying. My job is connecting himself to... Uh, this prophecy in Isaiah, another pointer, all roads do not lead to God. The road that John the Baptist paved or prepared, the road that the wise men understood, 300 prophecies about Jesus Christ, every one of them a marker, every one of them a breadcrumb, pointing us to the one and only, the only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So his, his message, hey, the reign, the dominion of heaven is approaching. This is he who, who was spoken of. John was spoken of in this way. Now, uh, we get a little bit about John here. Verse 4, John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. What a great description. I mean, I just love this guy. That's, that's like really the eat-to-live diet. I mean, you're just barely eating enough to live. Locusts and wild honey. You know, anybody have locusts? Anybody have that on the, on the agenda today for lunch? Locusts? I mean, it's what you eat when you're in the wilderness. It's what you eat when you're in the desert 
locusts. That's why I live here and not in the desert, because I'm not really fond of locusts. I mean, thank God for the honey that you could put on them and at least try to get them to be a little more palatable. I don't know if you stir-fry them or how you prepare them. They do that around the world, by the way. I looked it up. They do uh, stir-fry, roasted, or boiled. You can eat them immediately, or you can dry them and eat them later. Put them in your kid's little uh, plastic bag for lunch. And there you go, parents. Look, all the kids are in their Sunday school rooms. Let's just get together and do a practical joke. We'll put in our kids' lunch boxes locusts and honey for lunch and see what happens when they come home. Social services will be at your door or something. I don't know what will happen. An odd clothing. Again, he's not, he's outside of the, he's off the board. You know, have you ever been to a church and you began to criticize the way the pastor dressed? I mean, maybe you came here. The first time you came here and you saw me with my little hiking sneakers and my jeans that are kind of ripped on the inside because I, I started to shrink and my pants got too long and I don't like when they get all, you know, furled up at the bottom. So I cut the inside so they can flare out a little bit. Yeah. And I'm wearing just a sweatshirt kind of thing. I mean, aren't pastor's supposed to wear like a collar and, and, and you know, special clothes and all that stuff. And you came here and said, well, how can this guy have the word of God? I mean, look how he's dressed. And maybe you've done that places you've been. And we see John the Baptist. He's not dressed like the priest. He's not even in the temple. But he's preaching the word of God. And maybe we should be concerned more about the message of the guy we listen to, the person who's preaching. Maybe that's what we should complain more about. Maybe the church should protest when the pastor's not preaching the word of God rather than criticizing his wardrobe or his dietary, uh, his way of eating, you know, or something like that. Don't you, don't you think that would be more appropriate for the church when the church complained? You know, because we know that, that in, in the church at large, there is a departure from the word of God. We're living in those times when, man, some of you I've met have said, we have been searching around for a place to find a, a church where the word of God is preached. And there are others in this county, trust me. I know the pastors. There are some pastors in this county dedicated to teaching the Word of God. But it's becoming more rare. And you folks shouldn't tolerate it. We, the church, shouldn't tolerate anything less than the Word of God. Amen. And that's what I love about it. He's coming in the likeness. Why, why Matthew is bringing attention to his clothes is because this guy has the ministry of Elijah. He has the ministry that so many of the prophets had. If you read 2 Kings chapter 1, you'll find this is a description of what Elijah wore. Same type of outfit, same type of ministry. There's a parallel between John the Baptist and Elijah. What was Elijah's job? What was Elijah's calling? Like so many of the prophets, to turn the people back to God. A couple of months back in the summertime, we had a youth retreat at YDI over in the mountains near West Virginia. And I had an opportunity to preach from 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah on Mount Carmel, turning the people back to God or challenging them. And he says to them, how long will you falter between two opinions? If God is God, if the Lord, if Jehovah is God, then serve him. And if this other, these other things are gods, then serve them. If you're God, then serve you. And he calls them powerfully to repentance and fire comes. It's a great scene. It was powerful up on the mountaintop there at YDI. It was just a neat opportunity. And I was thinking about John the Baptist calling them to repent, calling them to change their mind, to change their direction, to look at their lives. 
and about Elijah doing the same thing, saying, saying to you this morning, and it could be you know, just because you're here, doesn't mean you're on board with the Lord. And it might well be God's message to you this morning, how long will you falter between two opinions? How long will you keep yourself straddling the fence? Just enough God to, to sort of skate by, but just enough of the world so that, man, nobody hassles you. You're just trying to fit in both places. Look, if you're a Christian, you're not going to fit in the world. You're just going to be different. And that was the problem at the time that Jesus came, at the time that John was preaching. They were just fitting in. They had just adopted all the ways of the world, were fitting in with the world. Even the religious system was being overseen by the Roman Empire. They had turned away from God. And I like this because John is saying, folks, get ready. Stuff is happening and it's time to prepare. He's clothed in this, eating locusts and wild honey and, you know, out in the wilderness. Just a, a neat guy. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Was there a response to his preaching? I mean, were people willing to wake up and pay attention? The answer is, oh yeah, they were. This is a huge revival. Let's just read that one more time. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized. I get a sense a lot of people were responding to his message. And they didn't have Christian radio. They didn't have Christian TV. It must have been word of mouth. Hey, did you guys hear about this wild guy down at the Jordan baptizing people? I mean, he's fiery. I like him. And we know in our hearts, he's right. Yeah, we know he's right. We ought to do something about it. Yeah, we should. Let's go. Let's do it. Let's do what he says. What were the people doing? They were being baptized. Now, some of you may think that baptism is just a Christian thing. We inherited it from the Jews. They did it first. And, and lots of world religions practice baptism literally means immersion. That's what the word to baptize means, to submerge or immerse. It's not a Christian thing. The Jews were very familiar with ritual washings and immersions. If you converted from paganism to Judaism... You'd have to go through a few rituals, one of them being full immersion baptism. Baptism pictured for them and for us two things in particular. One, new birth. It pictured new birth. And the second is it pictured a, a new beginning or a, and a cleansing. So a cleansing. And, and you know, man, when you go outside and you're working outside all day and you come in and you're dirty, you just want to hop in the shower and get clean. So baptism in and of itself, is an external thing. It's just a, it's a bodily thing. But what it points to, what it symbolizes, what it signifies is something deeper. And that's why for these people, it's connected to repentance and confession. What John is wanting to deal with is not, you oh, you dirty desert dwellers, we need to get you cleaned up. Out here in the desert all the time, you need a bath. It was a dirtiness of the soul. A dirtiness of the heart that he wanted to deal with. And so when he calls them to repentance, he calls them to a new beginning. When you were a leper and you got healed, and you were clean, then you would go through a ritual baptism. 
to signify, hey, a new start, a new birth, a new life. So they came to be baptized. And you know, we talked about attention earlier, and, and I said that some of you would rather just not have any attention drawn to yourself. You'd rather just, just kind of blend in. You know. And I said that's not always a good thing. And this is why it's not always a good thing. Some of those people, no doubt, were just like you. They said, you know, I don't like crowds. There's a huge crowd gathered for this baptism. You read the history of Calvary Chapel and you see the pictures when the Jesus people movement was going on. And the Holy Spirit was just doing a powerful work in those days. Thousands of people on the shores, on the beach, watching as people were baptized. I think 5,000 people baptized in one year back during the Jesus people movement. Is that right, Dave? Was it 5,000 or 10,000? Do you remember? It was a lot of people. And it's easy to say, well, I can't make that commitment because I'm so scared of people. Look, and week after week, you hear the Word of God. And your heart pounds at the end of the service on occasion when I give an invitation. And your heart pounds and you know that Word was for you. Or there's something to confess. But because your fear of, of people and what they're going to think of you when you come and make this profession, when you stand for the Lord, you don't do it. Because you're scared of what people are going to say. You don't want the attention on you. Trust me, the attention isn't on you. The attention is on the Lord working in you. That's where the attention is. So, get over yourself. Because they came, and John didn't say, okay, now, we're going to start, we need to get some elders, and we need to have some classes begun in discipleship, so you guys can understand what it is you're going to do before you do it. So we've got to have... You know, six months of discipleship, and then we'll see how you're doing, then we'll baptize you. They came, they were baptized right then. And how could they baptize with such confidence right then that there really was a change? Because they were confessing their sins. And that's oftentimes what we don't see today. And that's something I'm guilty of not demanding it. Not asking for that when people, yes, I want to be saved. I want the glorious life that God has promised. Oh, praise the Lord, brother. Welcome to the kingdom. What I ought to ask you and what you ought to do is confess your sins. Not confess your sin singular. In other words, not confess, I, I am a sinner in general. I mean, that's easy to say. These people came confessing the specifics of their sins. How they had fallen away from God. How they had fallen into thievery. How they had treated people unfairly. And we, and we call ourselves Jews. And this is how we treat people. It's wrong, they would say. And we need to change that. We need to do something about that. We need to be cleansed and washed of that. And that's how they came. And I tell you what, boy, there's where you can have confidence in baptism. Confidence in your... When you come, when we come, and we take that time to say, here's the deal in my life. When you got saved, was there a recognition, a self-examination, a recognition that yes, there's something. They didn't come confessing their husband's sins. I wish my husband were here. He really could use to be baptized. You know, or my wife or my kids really need this. They didn't come complaining about the system. Well, if only this religious system was better. You know, those priests, they're the ones that really need it. They came confessing their sins. Do you have any sins to confess today? If you're already saved, man, you can confess those and keep confessing them and trust in the, the, the cleansing of the Word and the blood of Jesus Christ. First John, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all 
unrighteousness. It's not, the cleansing doesn't happen in the water. The cleansing happens by the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for you, for your sins. And I just want to draw our attention to one more thing before we we move on to the next section. This is what I would call a tremendous revival. And how many of us have prayed, oh Lord, if only you would, you would, your spirit would send a revival. And we are confused about revival, I think. And I did a little research. Just for your information, John the Baptist was called by Jesus the, the greatest man. He was a, a, John, Jesus said, this guy is the greatest man, the greatest prophet, the greatest man born of a woman, human being. And he did no miracles. There's not a single miracle recorded by John the Baptist. He didn't do any. His ministry was not a ministry of miracles. His ministry was a ministry of saying, hey, Jesus is coming. There, He's the one that gets to stand and say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There, He could actually, all the other prophets, all they could do was say, well, one is coming. We don't really understand what we're saying. We don't know who he is, but we know he's coming. John the Baptist could say, there he is. There he is. And we can say that today. We can point people to Jesus Christ and say, there he is. He did no miracles. He had no program or no team assembled to, to you know, how's this revival going to... They didn't have it on their church bulletin schedule. You know, Monday night, Tuesday night, we're going to have our revival. You can't plan that. You can't plan when a revival is going to happen. It happens when? It happens when people do just what we see here. Number one. There is an intense and very real sense that God is near and that judgment is coming. Do you see that? That's John's message. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. These people had a very real sense because of John's message that God was very near to them. That's what we're lacking, folks. That's what keeps revival from happening in Fluvanna. Because we don't really think about God. What we're worried about is lunch near. Is the end of this sermon near? Please. I'm tired, I'm cold, I want, I've got things to do at home, you know. So those are the things. And we don't, we have lost, folks. We live in the world, the days of humanism and evolutionary teaching, and we've lost a sense of the closeness of God and of the judgment of God. That is the first element. The second element is someone daring enough to say it, like John the Baptist. It doesn't have to come from within the, the system Just someone willing to call people back to say, hey folks, we have left God. Someone willing to say to the church, to ask the question, have we left God? Have we forgotten God and all of our programs and all of our systems and all of our attention to the church? Have we left Jesus out of the program? I mean, if if there's a, a question that's been asked, if the Holy Spirit left the church, would anybody notice? So we have... The, the message of God's nearness. We have the spokesperson willing to take a stand for holiness before God. And we have a group of people willing to admit their sinful state and embrace true change in their lives. Revival will happen. Revival will happen. Then you want to see this, this world. This, you know, We sit home and we complain about all that's wrong in our political system. That's all that's wrong in the church. And even, you know, maybe even in this church, there's, we're not perfect. But what is needed, folks, 
in this day, and we are in a we are in a, a unique day and time, like never before. What is needed is for folks like me, just normal everyday folks who have their identity in Jesus Christ to confess their sins and desire true change of their life, not worrying about whether they're getting attention from other people or not. A true sign of a work of God, said Jonathan Elliott, is a delight in the excellency of, or Jonathan Edwards, excuse me, the excellency of God, his holy character and his truth. True religious affections are attended by what Edwards calls evangelical humiliation. The believer has a sense of his own utter insufficiency and the hateful nature of his own sin from which he turns, coming to depend on God's provision of righteousness. One of the true signs of a, is a change of nature, the new birth, the creation of a new disposition, which has the likeness of Jesus. A vital sign is fruit in Christian practice. And so we see as we move on, there's a group that comes that catches Jesus or catches John's eye. Excuse me. When he saw the... Many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers. Ah, that's why I like this guy. He's not afraid of people. Who are these Pharisees and Sadducees? These are, are religious Jews. The Pharisees were the traditionalists. They would say, well, it's always been done this way. This is the way it's got to be done. They have taken God's word and said, well, here's how that works out in our traditions. And they held their traditions in very high esteem. They were Sticklers for the letter of the law. This is how it's got to be done. The, the Sadducees were the aristocracy. The priest, the high priest, would be from the Sadducees. Sort of like Democrat and Republican. It's just different political parties or different religious parties. And usually they're at odds with each other, but now this guy is on the scene, and they're worried. Why? Because he's getting too much attention. Everybody's worried about who's getting the attention. He's getting the attention, so they come. They're sent down not for confession, but for investigation. Go see who this guy is. What's his deal? Where's he from? Is he for real? What, you know, who is he? And so they send these Pharisees and Sadducees, send folks down to come to John, and he sees them there, and look at his response. I mean, this isn't the way to start a message, is it? This isn't the way to greet newcomers to your church. Hey, brood of vipers. Hey, you snake babies, you know. I don't know that John would have had a place on our greeting team here at Calvary Chapel. Come on in, baby snakes. See what the Lord's going to do with you. <laughs> you know, could you just imagine. But doesn't that tell us something about the status of the religious system at that time? Doesn't that tell us something about what was going on in, in again, the religious system? He, that he says to them, you, you religious guys, you are like snakes. Ooh. That's a, good, that's a sad commentary on, on what things were like in the days of Jesus. He says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I imagine maybe he had Lot in mind, fleeing, being warned to flee from, from Sodom and Gomorrah before they were, uh, had fire and brimstone rained down on them. He says, verse 8, Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. So as he addresses them in this very tough way, I mean, he's a hard-hitting, fiery preacher. And he says to them, look, you guys, you snakes, talk is cheap. If you want to come and be baptized, if that's really what you're here for, then let it be shown in your life that there's really a desire to change. 
because that's what they lacked. And he already supposes, he knows their line, he knows their go-to line, doesn't he? He says, and don't say we have Abraham as our father. Stop, you guys always say that. Whenever someone tries to convict you of your sinfulness and your religiosity, you always go back to Abraham. That's like us saying, well, I'm an American, of course I'm a Christian. Well, maybe not. So you see what John is calling, he's saying, no, you're not just automatically a Christian because you live in America. There's a, when you become a Christian, there's a change, there's a repentance, and it ought to be recognized. How do you, you know, right now it's wintertime, and you can't go out to a tree and identify it clearly. You don't necessarily know what kind of tree it is. Maybe the bark gives you some clues, but we've got fruit trees at our house, and you know, unless you're really, really good at identifying those things, you don't necessarily know. Now, is this a pear tree or an apple tree or what kind of tree is this? But in the summer, we'll know for sure, won't we? Because there'll be fruit. And fruit, folks, fruit never lies. Fruit never lies. When a person truly repents, when a person truly changes, there is obvious evidence in their lives of that change. Things are different now. Things change. So he says to them, look, talk is cheap. Don't say just because you know I'm an American. Or some of you go to right away, well, I'm a good person. That's what John might say to you. And don't say in your heart, I'm a good person. It's about the sin. It's about the, the wrong things, the ways you've turned away from God. And he says, uh-oh, I say, to you, I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. I mean, this, the tree, the unfruitful tree is about to get leveled. I mean, he's cleaning house. So it's the picture of an axe there in the orchard. You've got a tree that's not bearing any fruit, and it's going to be cut down. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The first use of three uses of the word fire. Let's just go a little... Oh, boy. I'll tell you what. That's enough for today. I know uh, I'd love to keep going, but I'd like to have Phil come up. And I don't want to leave us without time to think about some things as we close. You know, I started out by asking you who gets the attention. And I don't know if I did a great job of pointing out things as we went through, but I'm going to do that now. We did talk about those of you that might say, you know, I don't want any attention on me. But there is a good kind of attention. As we talked about, that, that attention that comes when you say, you know what, I'm going to take a stand for Jesus Christ. I'm going to publicly be baptized. I'm going to publicly confess my sins. I mean, not, not necessarily confessing all your sins to all of us. Some of it we'd rather not know, trust me. Uh, but there's a confession of sins. But what if like John the Baptist, and like me, God calls you to a public role? You guys know, you, you that have been around here a while, you know me. I, for years, I, I would have preached in shorts in the summertime, but I couldn't because you'd see my knees shaking. This is not my natural place. It's not what I asked for. But it was what God called me to, like John the Baptist. And when, when John the Baptist was, when, when these Pharisees and Sadducees were coming to him, they were trying to figure out who this guy was. And all the people were talking, maybe he's the Christ. 
Maybe he's the one. And can you imagine as a preacher, whoa, they're thinking pretty high of me. Maybe I'm the one. He could easily lose focus. But he said boldly, look, I'm not the Christ. My job is simply to point people to him. And he was going to do that job. He wasn't going to shy away from it. Well, you know, I'm, I'm born out here. I'm just a country boy. I don't have anything to say. But he embraced it. He embraced it. He knew, he knew what Scripture said about him. Do you know what Scripture says about you? Do you know what the Bible says about who you are? That you are accepted in the Beloved. That you are redeemed. That you are forgiven. That by receiving Jesus Christ, you have been given the right to be called a child of God. So you can stand proudly and say, not I'm something because of who I am. I'm something because of who God has made me. Of who I am in Christ. And I thank God for John the Baptist and his fiery preaching and his willingness to stand before a crowd. It's something I had to get over. I was happy just working out in the, with the horses and, and doing all that thing. But God called me to something different. And, and maybe God's not going to call you to some type of public ministry, but maybe He is. And maybe you have to get over yourself and be willing and ready to... You know, God's called you into a church family, right? He's called you into the body of Christ. And there are no loners in the body of Christ. Now, some are more introverted and others more extroverted and that's okay who gets the attention are you always looking to get attention to yourself what what thing can i be noticed for is that something that you worry about you know when god sets you free from that it's so good because now that you have christ or now that we see christ we have someone we can point people too. Like, I don't want to point. The church, church doesn't save people. Church hasn't saved you. Church attendance hasn't saved you. When you come here, when you're here today, what we are telling you, what we are reminded of ourselves is the message of John the Baptist. Look, Christ has already come once in the flesh as a man, fully man, fully God. He's coming again. He's coming again. And I don't know what the status of your walk with him is, but maybe this is a pertinent message. Maybe the message of repent, confessing your sins is good for today. Because, you know, it could be that Christ is coming back tomorrow. And you just know, as we've been talking, that, man, there's some things in your life that just uh, that aren't right. So... Phil is going to play a, just a final song for us. We still have a few minutes before 11.30. The Sunday school classes get mad at us if we get done before 11.30 because they're not done yet. So just uh, take a minute as Phil plays. You can join him in singing. Or you can just ask yourself these questions. Number one, who gets the attention? Am I looking to draw attention to myself? Am I shying away from attention? that God might have me to be saying something to someone I'm scared of? Or do we have it kind of balanced where we recognize that by the grace of God I am what I am? I'll do what God called me to do.
because I want to be one that's pointing to him because he's the savior of the world and not me. So maybe that's us. Um, Maybe you're just uh, hearing this stuff for the first time and thinking, you know, what is this all about? What is going on here? This message of repentance and change, you know, I don't want to have to change. It's everybody else's fault. But as you've been listening, as you've been, as you've been hearing, like those people that came to be baptized, like that revival, when the preacher said it, you knew. You knew in your heart that the message was for you and that you had to respond. You knew in your heart that your life had become dirty, far from God. And you heard the invitation to prepare for Christ to come into your life by repenting, turning away from those things and turning to God. He'll work it out for you. Don't worry about that. God will work it out for you. Well, any folks that have been have had God working in their lives just say amen. Doesn't God work it out? Philip, doesn't God work it out? You don't have to know all the answers. They didn't have the theology courses. But they came confessing their sins. So just as, as Phil plays, you know, if you want to come forward and just make a public stand, just do it. Again, get over yourself. We'll rejoice because you're honest finally with who you are and that you're willing to accept Christ to come in and cleanse your life from the inside. You know, we watch all this TV. You ever watch a movie and you just feel like my brain needs to get scrubbed after watching that? Like, I just feel dirty after watching that movie. I just want to open up my head and scrub my brain a little bit. And sometimes we engage in activities. We say things. We do things. We just feel like, man, I just, I just know I need to get scrubbed on the inside. Right, Lisa? We talk about that sometimes. It's being, being scrubbed on the inside. So bow your head. Come forward. Make this song that Phil's going to sing your prayer. work of God. Aren't we ready for that? I know I am. I I mean, I'm ready for a fresh work of God in my life. Just falling into the ruts and the patterns, you know? Wait till next week. Wait till you see what happens next week in our story. I baptize, baptize you with water, but there is one coming. I'm not even worthy to carry his shoes. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Powerful. Powerful stuff. That's our reality, folks. So let's stand. And uh, one last opportunity. We're going to sing this together. If that's you again, and, and you're knowing that there's some confession and repentance that needs to happen in your life, just come forward. And uh, otherwise, once the song is through, Bill will excuse you. I cry out.